And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. The 30th of March recording session began at a very late 11pm, for one very important reason. The Beatles had spent the bulk of the day at Chelsea Manor Photographic Studios posing for Michael Cooper in front of the life-size collage of famous faces for what would become arguably the most recognisable album sleeve of all time. Paul and artist Peter Blake explain how the Sgt Pepper cover came to be. Originally the cover was going to be us dressed as this other band in kind of crazy gear, but it was all going to be stuff that we'd always wanted to wear, all stuff that like we always secretly really liked and it may have been there. And we were going to have photos on the wall, which were all our heroes. And it could be anything, it could be Marlon Brando in his leather jacket, or it could be Einstein. It could be anybody we'd all ever thought, oh, he was good. And it was going to be this band and all their cult heroes. Mm-hmm. And we kind of put this other identity on them. and. Um, that was how it turned out, you know, the cover got changed a lot, you know, in the, in the process. But that was the basic idea behind it, yeah, a kind of fantasy show, you know. My main contribution, I think, was to decide that, that if we made the crowd in a certain way, it could be anybody. So I think that was my, that, that was the, the thing I would claim that really changed the direction of it. Things happened like there was a, a young boy who was helping who said, or could I do a guitar in hyacinths? And it was such a, a nice sort of gentle, sweet idea that we said, yes, certainly. So this, this sort of white shape at the front is actually a guitar. One of the myths that rose was that you can read that as P-A-U-L question mark. You, you know, when the stories of Paul's death were rife, this was a sign that, that Paul had indeed died. But of course, it was never intended to be P-A-U-L question mark. It's simply a guitar. Another myth, which has grown up, is that these plants around the edge were marijuana plants. And I think it's been kind of established now um, that, that they're not. Although a mammoth undertaking at the time, the concept was simple. The Beatles chose people who had influenced them and all the whole world, and Peter Blake and the Beatles' assistants sourced images of them, blew them up into life-size cutouts, and carefully arranged them with a variety of other props thus creating a collage for the real-life Beatles themselves to be part of. However, the choices of people weren't without their own problems, as Paul and EMI chairman at the time, Sir Joseph Lockwood, explained. There's a bit of a dispute about this cover, you know, everyone was kind of, oh, we can't do that, you know. Because that's the thing, if you're being free, it's obviously a lot of people say, oh, you know, naughty, watch it. They'd been refused permission by the EMI uh, music department to issue this cover because there were massive, important people on it. And they came to me and, and said, I said, it's very risky to me, it's very dangerous to publish this in America. He was great, Sir Joe, actually. He was very good during that time. I think it must have come as a real shock to him, all this stuff. Paul McCartney said, there's no risk whatsoever. Everybody on here will be delighted. I said, well, that's what you think, and I hope you're right. Oh, no problem, no problem. 
And he came round to my house. He said, I'm afraid, old chap, like, we can't have Gandhi. I said, what do you mean? Gandhi's all right. You know, what's wrong with him? Where is he? I defend the Indians. They were very important. We shouldn't upset India. And in his particular case, I, I refused to have anything to do with it. Immediately, Paul McCartney this time, I think, was on his own. He immediately agreed. And so I said, right, well, that's out. Now, as far as the rest are concerned, I think we've got to make an effort to get permission from everybody. May West wrote back and said, what would I be doing in the Lonely Hearts Club? You know, no, I won't be on it. So then, then I think it was suggested that the Beatles all wrote her a personal letter and said, we'd very much like you to be on it. Then she said, yes, she would. Nothing happened from that day to this. As far as I know, not a single complaint came from anybody. Nobody asked to be left off the record. Along with Mahatma Gandhi, other rejects from the sleeve included John's choices of Adolf Hitler and Jesus Christ, probably a wise decision considering the controversy of 1966. Another groundbreaking idea was printing the lyrics of all the songs for inclusion on the back cover, something which we take for granted today but had never actually been done before. A productive day which saw the birth of a remarkable image imitated by dozens of bands and artists ever since. On their late arrival at Abbey Road that evening, the Beatles wasted no time in adding guitars, tambourine and Paul's bass to With a Little Help From My Friends. Engineer Richard Lush remembers the night that Paul added his distinctive bass line. He did, he did that right at the end. I mean, there was no bass on that track until the very end. And there again, it's one of those things that sort of is in my mind forever. I can remember being in the, in the control room. Paul played it in the control room with the lead going down to the studio. And... Um, we spent about three, three or four hours doing that, each little bit, and he'd play it, and then he'd look up, and you'd know you had to do it again, and then he'd play it, and he'd look up again, and I can just remember him looking at me, you know, for all that time, looking at me, thought, oh, he likes that one, okay, you want to hear it back, you know, and he'd smile, and you know, he liked it, and then you'd move on a little bit more. But it was, and in fact, I saw him, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, and I said, uh, we were talking about bass, I said, with a little help for my friends, it's pretty good, you know. And he was quite sort of chuffed, you know. I mean, he knows it was, a, it was you know, one of the highlights of his, his performances, but it took, took a while to do. To help the crossfade from Sergeant Pepper into With a Little Help From My Friends, it was decided to keep the concert feel from the opening track flowing through into its follow-up. Engineer Jeff Emmerich recalls how this was achieved. On the intro on the Sgt. Pepper track, you know, Sgt. Sar- Pepper's, no, 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 no. Uh, it goes into Billy Shears. And there's, I, I know you can hear it on the, whichever, the stereo or the mono. You hear the audience laugh. And then, because we were flying these sound effects in, you know, the audience and bits, and, the, and the, there's a little laughter in there. And Paul made it, must have made it. Well, that's when you know Ringo comes on stage to sing Billy Shears, and he trips up and falls over. That's why the audience laugh. So every song is like a different act that comes on stage. That was the perception. Uh, this is the applause into a little help from my friends. Uh, it's on twenty.
if I sang out a tune, would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing out of key. Oh, I get by with a little help from my friends. Mm, I get high with a little help from my friends. Mm, gonna try with a little help from my friends. What do I do when my love is away? Does it worry you to be alone? How do I feel by the end of the day? Are you sad because you're on your own? No, I get by with a little help from my friends. Mm, get high with a little help from my friends. Mm, gonna try with a little help from my friends. isolation mix of With a Little Help From My Friends. The original sound effects tape prepared for the crossfade between tracks 1 and 2 of the A-side of the Sgt Pepper LP would be applied on the 7th of April 1967 during the final mixing sessions for the album. It was decided to end the album in the same vein in which it had started. If the mythical band had introduced the show at the start of side A, then it made sense that it should close the show towards the end of side B acting as a sort of lead-in to the encore of A Day in the Life, which had already been earmarked as the track to close the album, seeing as it would be impossible to follow. Beatles assistant Neil Aspinall recalls how this idea came about. And then at the end of every Beatles show, Paul always used to say, it's, uh, you know, it's time to go, you know, we've got to go to bed, and, uh, you know, this is our last number. You know, do the last number and go. And uh, I said to... To Paul, why doesn't Sergeant Pepper come on at the end of the album and say, you know, well, that's it, we've got to go, you know, here's our last number, right? And uh, send the album on tour instead of the band, right? So uh, we like that idea. Seeing all the shapes around the studio and all those bubbles there, the bumps there. Okay. 
Keep the bass drum loud. Keep the bass drum loud. Bam! Yeah! Oh, is that what you're doing? Yeah, I know, yeah. It's it's Ringo. It's because you're listening to me singing. I'll stop singing, but, you know. Okay. Bam, 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 bam. Gathering in Studio One on the 1st of April 1967, the Beatles recorded nine takes of the Sgt Pepper reprise. Engineer Richard Lush remembers the atmosphere that night. It was just one of those special nights when they were playing great. They were all there together, which didn't always happen. And we were in, we were in a different studio. We were in Number One Studio, which is the main classical studio, which normally didn't have pop music done in it. And we built little houses for everybody to sort of be close to each other in. And it was just a great, the, the vibe, them playing that night was fantastic. And it's, it's, it's just a moment, you know, when a, when a band's really firing, you know. <laughs>
This would be the last time that all four Beatles would be in the studio together for the Sgt. Pepper sessions. Paul was due to fly to the US on the 3rd of April, and the others would come and go, but work on all songs was now largely finished. George's only composition to make it to the final cut of the LP, last visited on the 22nd of March, was due for an overdub of strings to complement the array of Indian instruments already recorded. I found it very fascinating actually working with George on that in trying to get from English musicians what the Indians were already giving us. It started out by being George working with a Dilruba player, which is a kind of Indian violin. And, uh, and then I had to copy that with a bank of English uh, violinists. Here we had the Dilrubas on two and our English instruments joining in on track three, but George answering on sitar. Here it is. And pizzicato strings accompanying him. Bit of slurpy cello. Doing the same thing as the Dilruba. the same way, the same kind of swoops that Dilruba does. You hear his voice, you hear the Dilruba.
Isolation mix of Within You, Without You. The final song completed for the Sgt. Pepper LP on the 3rd of April 1967, highlighting the beautiful interplay between Eastern and Western instrumentation. The addition of a few seconds of laughter, as requested by George, would be achieved thanks again to the EMI sound effects collection on the 4th of April. The other song that George brought to these sessions, however, wasn't completely forgotten. Although considered as being too late to add to the LP, it was brushed off in a session on the 20th of April, with all four Beatles now back in the studio, to add some interesting overdubs to the existing track. Only Northern Song, this is a copy of the Master Remix. Listening to this song, you may think that 
early mono mix of only a northern song, now with added bass guitar, trumpet and glockenspiel, made by mixing the version from February with the most recent recording to produce a complete take. The song would remain on the tape shelf for some time yet. During early April, the mixing process marched on, with some minor changes in the track order on side A resolved before settling on the released listing. It's hard to imagine a time when mono records were king, but the decision to make a stereo version of the album was made relatively late, thereby making it a very difficult process, as engineer Richard Lush recalls. And then when we came to mix it in stereo, um, we'd sort of forgotten what we, what we, what we were going to do. So it kind of, when I hear the stereo, I think, oh, we haven't got the flanging on that verse. Oh, we didn't. And because it was sort of done in a bit of a rush, you know, at the end of the album, it kind of, 
The stereo is the one you hear on the radio, but the mono, the mono is the Bible. Well, it was mono right up until it was nearly finished, and then somebody from EMI, because all all pop music all came out in mono, classical music was out in stereo, and then somebody said, "Oh, we're going to bring Pepper out in stereo." And there was a lot of sort of grunting and groaning and, oh, God, we've got to mix it all again. Um, so that was George Martin, Jeff and I's task. We had to go and mix everything all over again in stereo. And then try to remember, I mean, I had notes uh, with speeds of tape machines and things like that written on a bit of paper, but there were some things that sort of didn't get done as well as they were on the mono. So the mono is the only one to listen to, ever. The final mixes brought the epic recording sessions for Sgt Pepper to an end, with one minute exception. With the stirring and chaotic crescendo of A Day in the Life and its 45-second piano chord ending the experience for listeners, there seemed nowhere else to go, except for silence. The Beatles had other ideas. As regular party-goers, the Beatles remember being frustrated that when a record finished playing late at night, turntables without an automatic lift-off arm would have the needle endlessly stuck in the run-out groove, until someone finally decided to get up and change the record. They decided to place something in the run-out groove that was so irritating that you couldn't help but get up and turn it off to make it stop. And those with a state-of-the-art automatic lift-off arm would still get an unexpected burst of something just before the needle lifted. In a mixing session on the 21st of April, the Fab Four ran down to the studio floor and were recorded in two short takes, making several seconds of silly noises and talking gibberish. The tape was promptly chopped up, put back together, turned backwards and added to the end of the master tape, hence creating what might be the first hidden track now known as the Sgt. Pepper Inner Groove. But that wasn't all. John suggested that in the silence between the final chord of A Day in the Life and the newly recorded Inner Groove, a high-pitched whistle, audible only to dogs, should be inserted. The boffins at Abbey Road worked out that 15 kilocycles, the same pitch as police dog whistles, could be added at the disc-cutting stage, thus including something for all the family. Here's how the album finished for most people. <laughs> the shortest officially released recording by the Beatles, clocking in at just over two seconds. Subsequent reissues of the album omitted the dog whistle and inner groove, but the advent of CDs offered a new opportunity to amuse or irritate Beatles listeners. <laughs> There can be no doubt that Sgt Pepper broke new ground in so many ways. From the recording techniques used and the time taken to capture the songs, to the inventive use of conceptualised packaging. It was also the first Beatles LP to be released in an unaltered state, 
especially in the United States, where all previous album releases had been a hodgepodge of songs from various albums due to the 12-song limit imposed by Capitol, as opposed to 14 in the UK. The Beatles and EMI realised that this album could not possibly be cut and shuffled as other albums had been, and needed to be released worldwide as a coherent and cohesive package. The Beatles, and those who worked on its recording, remember it as a remarkable piece, very much of its time. I suppose it is a museum piece. It evoked the spirit of the age, of the Carnaby Street and Mary Quant. It was a joyous spurting out of life. and it was peace and it was love and it was music. This, the songwriting team thing will keep going on whatever happens, will it? Yeah, we'll probably carry on writing music forever, you know. It's getting better all the time. That's probably the, the big difference, is that people played it a bit safe in popular music. But I think that's what we suddenly realised, is that you didn't have to. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in. No, we, we just were, were getting better technically and mus musically, that's all. I mean, we finally took over the studio. I mean, in the early days, we had to take what we were given, you know, and we had to make it in two hours or whatever it was, and one, three takes was enough, and and we didn't know about you can get more bass and do it. We, learned, we, we were learning the technique. I remember track by track, it was exciting at that time. Nothing like it had ever been. They could do whatever they wanted, it was a meeting of the right people. Jeff was uh, an engineer that wanted to try things. There was no budget, there was no time period, there was no deadline for it to be finished. So it really was a carte blanche. You know, we could have a 40-piece orchestra, we could do anything we wanted. And until, until everybody was happy, it wasn't finished and it had never been like that. So consequently, it, it, it turned out being, you know, I think 400 hours it was all together. Yeah, I mean, every, as, every aspect of it, from the cover to the songs to the way it was all put together was totally different to what everybody else was doing at the time. I think there's lots, a lot of better songs out on different uh, records. It's just, it was the time, the attitude, it was the concept, the world was trying to change, you know, it didn't quite make it, but it made a small move. It was in the air, I mean, the, the you know, for me, those psychedelic years were the most exciting. It's like a period, if you listen to music from the 20s or the 30s, it has a sort of sound to it, and I think, you know, that's important. I must confess that when we were going through Pepper, People were saying, how's it coming along? I said, fine, you know. And I must confess that as we were getting longer and longer into the album, and more and more avant-garde, I was wondering whether we were being a little bit over the top and a little bit maybe pretentious. Uh, just a slight niggle of worry. I thought, well, is the public ready for this yet? The musical papers, which you used to read, were started to slag us off because we hadn't done anything, because it took five months to record. And I remember with great glee seeing in one of the papers, oh, the Beatles have dried up. 
there's nothing coming from there. They've been in the studio, they can't think what we're doing. And I was sort of sitting rubbing my hands saying, you just wait. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll sit in again with the Beatles as they head back into the studio for yet another project. Until next time.